Just a, a couple of phrases to get us started. Maybe you recognize some of these phrases. Thou shalt obey. I have to say that I have to do this while I say that. Thou shalt obey. You shall not. Obey my voice. Walk in my commands. Keep my word. Obey the Lord your God. Fear God and keep his commandments. Most of us have heard phrases like that many, many times in our lives. We've heard it in our Bible reading or in a sermon or in a small group or maybe from your parents. In fact, some of you probably grew up with those phrases from a very young age. Hearing your parents quote them over and over again at you as if to say, if you obey me, you're obeying God. And so conformity to a moral code has been drilled into most of us in some way. Even if you didn't grow up with Christian parents, it's still likely that, that your mom and dad demanded that you follow some set of rules. Maybe you've heard this before. As long as you're living under my roof, you'll obey my rules. That probably sounds familiar. The reality is, to some extent, we all grew up as little moralists, being taught to fall in line and to obey a set of rules and commands. And I'm not necessarily denigrating that. That's part of our calling as parents is to help our kids learn how to obey. The question is, what is the reason behind that obedience? Yes, we need to teach our kids to obey, but what is the reason that they ought to obey? Is it because mom and dad want their child to be at the top of the class of Awana so that they can burst with pride at church about how good their kids are? Is it because they want their their children to grow up to be good citizens? Is it because mom and dad want their children to be uh, honor roll students so they can put that weird bumper sticker on their, on their car? Or are they just trying to make sure their child doesn't embarrass them in public? For some of us, because of something in our background or something in our upbringing, the whole idea of emphasizing obedience and rule following produces a visceral reaction in us, especially if you've been burned by somebody in authority, maybe a parent or a teacher or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, somebody who said, this is how you should act, this is how, what God expects of you, but then it turns out that they were a hypocrite in their private life and you felt betrayed by that. And that type of betrayal can cause a real scar on our souls. Perhaps you're one of those people who just always resisted the rules. You had one question every time a command came your way. But why? But why do I have to do that? Maybe you still do that today. This is something that's hard to get out of us, right? Why do I have to drive 25 miles per hour in that neighborhood? Why can't I download that movie for free? Why should I put that shopping cart back in the designated area? It's so far away. Why can't I take my own food into the theater? Why can't I just cross the street here instead of going a half block down to the crosswalk? Why not run with scissors? What's the problem? <laughs> Our government is so corrupt. Why do I have to report that income? I'm a good driver. Why can't I just look at my phone while I'm driving on the freeway? Why shouldn't I use that handicap parking spot? Nobody ever parks there. Why not roll that stop sign? It's in the middle of nowhere. Does that strike anybody? Imagine if you'd been in the Garden of Eden. God says, you can eat from every tree in the garden except for that one. 
Every single plant and shrub, all of it is fine except that one. If you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Me. Why? Why will I die if I eat from that tree? That's a dumb rule. Fruit's good for me. Why will I die if I eat from that tree? And if I'm going to die from it, why would God put that there in the first place? Satan, did God actually say you can't eat from the tree? Me, well, yeah, he did. But he didn't explain why. And I'm really frustrated about that. Satan, that's because God's holding out on you. He's hiding all the best stuff from you. But look at you, you're so smart, you see right through him. You don't have to obey rules that don't make sense to you. Me, head straight for the tree. I mean, that's probably all of our story, right? Are there commands of scripture that you don't fully understand and therefore you just don't want to follow? Or you won't follow? Now, there are times when we read commands of scripture and we say, well, that makes a ton of sense. And so that's an easy one to follow. And then there's things we look at and we say, I just don't understand why God designed it that way. I don't understand why he operates that way. And so oftentimes we find ourselves in the very same dilemma as our long lost ancestors, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Can I really trust God in this commandment? Am I going to listen to his commandment over my human reasoning and over my personal opinion and obey him? Most importantly, what is the proper heart motivation for me to keep God's commandments? That is the big question for today. So grab your Bibles. We're going to John 14. John 14, if you're, if you're relatively new with us, we've been in John for a while, but we're getting there. We're getting there. John 14. Now, I want to start with the verse I skipped over last Sunday. The elders that we had an elder meeting last week, nobody said a word. So thank you guys for your grace in my life. We skipped over verse 15, but we're going to go back there now. Verse 15. We're going to walk fairly quickly, by the way, through our passage for today, which is verses 18 to 24. We're going to save a really good chunk of time to, to look at the practical application of what we're going to talk about today. Right thinking about this idea of love and obedience. Okay, we at verse 15. Remember, we're still in the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed. These are some of his final words to his disciples. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Remember the setting here, Jesus is doing his best to assure his friends that they're going to be okay even though he's about to be taken away. You're going to be all right. So he's been, been sort of comforting their troubled hearts with a series of promises. And that promise there in verses 16 and 17 about the, the coming Holy Spirit is the greatest of all the promises so far. As I go away, he says, fear not, I will send another helper. And this helper is going to be of the same kind that I am. He will be just like me, meaning he will be God. And he will be with you permanently. He'll never be withdrawn from you, and he won't be just be with you or among you, but he will indwell you. He will be within you. And while I'm sure as the disciples heard that, they were still more than a bit puzzled about how all that's going to play out and what the details are, there's no doubt it would have been comforting. Jesus is continuing to reassure his friends. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
And certainly that's what had to be going on in the minds and the hearts of these guys, right? A sense of abandonment. He's going away. We can't follow. We're going to be spiritual orphans. And Jesus says, no, don't be afraid. I'm not going to let that happen. Now, commentators differ on what he means by this phrase, I will come to you. And there's several possibilities. In my opinion, I think he has multiple meanings in mind as he says this, both a a short-term and a long-term meaning. In the short term, he's talking about his post-resurrection appearances. I am going to come to you. Yeah, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back and I will be alive. I'll be alive again. You will see me. And what a comfort that will be for the disciples to to be able to tangibly see him with their eyes and to be able to actually touch his wounds with their hands. But the long-term meaning, I think, is even more meaningful. I think Jesus has Pentecost in mind here. How he would come and be present with his friends by way of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. So both meetings, I think, are in view here. In effect, Jesus is saying, look, I'm going away to die, and for the moment... I get it. This is going to be devastating, but I'm not abandoning you. I won't leave you as orphans. You will see me again. I will be alive, but more importantly, I will always be present with you through this other helper whom I will send in my place. And by the way, to this day, this is still such a wonderful truth about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. Isn't this great? This is the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Christ, to remind us of all that Jesus said, all that he taught, all that he is. That's the ministry of the Spirit. Okay, let's move on to verse 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know, or in the Greek, realize that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So more incredible promises in these verses, all designed, again, to give comfort to the troubled hearts of the disciples. Even though I'm going to physically die, you will see me alive. And in that day, two things will be absolutely certain in your mind. Number one, because I live, you too will live. What a great promise for us today, right? Because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, right? He is our example and our model. He, he clears the path for all of us to be raised to life someday. And so it'll be for all of us who are found in Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies are sown perishable. That's these bodies you're in right now, right? They're perishable. They're slowly dying. But they're raised imperishable. They're sown in dishonor and weakness. And some of us say amen. But raised in glory and in power. So because I live, you too will live. And secondly, in that day, you'll understand how we are all interconnected as one family. Look at this. The Son and the Father, you and I and the Son, and He and us through the Holy Spirit. This is what we talked about last week, right? Our discussion about this idea of coherence of the Trinitarian persons. How you and I are then invited into that relationship. It boggles the mind that we, we could ever be a part of that, right? And in a couple of weeks, we're going to look in chapter 15 and we'll see how Jesus even fleshes that idea out in the metaphor of the vine and the branches, how we can actually abide in the vine, abide in Christ and produce real fruit. Beautiful stuff. Now, as we come to verse 21, now we get to the meat of today's passage. This is the relationship between love and obedience to God's commandments. Look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose or reveal 
myself to him. Okay, real quick, you have to see this first, that to keep God's commandments, you first have to have them. Do you see that? Verse 21, you have to have them. What does that mean? Sort of an awkward phrase in the English, isn't it? You've got to have the commands. In the Greek, it's not so awkward. It's the, the verb echo, and it means to hold something or to possess something. So what Jesus is saying here is that we've got to take hold of his commandments in a personal way. We've got to come to a personal conviction about his commandments. He's talking about obedience as a matter of the heart, not just, not just paying lip service to it, not just in the body, but taking it within oneself and making it personal, making it a conviction. Remember, this is what he condemned the Pharisees of, right? That they would pay lip service. They knew the scriptures, right? But they only gave it lip service, but their hearts were not in it. They were far from God. So we start with taking hold of Jesus' commandments as a personal conviction of the heart that precedes what comes next, and that is keeping the commandments. Okay, so make sure you get that order right. We take it in as a personal conviction, and then we set out to keep his commandments in a practical way. And Jesus says, the one who does this truly loves me, and therefore is loved by the Father as well. And what a great promise we have there at the end of the verse. Jesus promises to reveal more of himself to anyone who is loved by both the Father and the Son. That is true disciples. I will reveal more of myself to you. Now, we can get this wrong and say, well, he must be talking about some mystical vision or some appearance or something. No, he's simply talking about giving us deeper insight into his person, having a deeper experience of his love, both by the Spirit and through the Word. That's the promise that we have. And it really carries the same idea that we see uh, Paul talk about in Ephesians 3. Here's how Paul prays. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay? In your hearts. Not just with you or among you, but he would dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in what? In love. May then be able to comprehend with all the saints. Look at, these, look at the language. What is the breadth and the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. In your, if you've got your Bible and a pen, underline those phrases. Breath, length, height, depth, filled up, fullness of God. These are very descriptive words. And it describes very, very similar to what we're reading in John 14, this idea that, that as we take in these personal convictions as we keep his commandments that Jesus says, as you do that by faith, I will reveal more of myself to you. We will go deeper together in relationship and then you will be, begin to be able to understand the depth and the height and the breadth and all of it, how much I actually love you. It's a richer, deeper sense of his presence and his love in the heart of every true believer. It's beautiful, isn't it? That's a hard thing to, to sort of you know, get our our hands on. It's not as tangible as we'd like. It's like, and you know what? Listen, if you struggle with this, you're like, I need to understand what that looks like in my life. We have elders in this church that can help you. They can walk you through that. We have a women's council for you ladies that you can talk to somebody about that. What does it tangibly look like to get my arms around this idea of going deeper with Christ, to feel a greater and deeper sense of his presence and his love? Okay, let's look, look, move on to verse 22. We'll, come, we'll circle back to some of that. Now remember, in this chapter, we've already seen two of the 11 object to something that Jesus has said. Remember, Thomas had a question. He shot his hand up. And then who? Philip, 
I got a question, and now we got a third objector here in verse 22. Judas, look what John says, not Iscariot. Don't get this wrong. We're not talking about the betrayer. He's gone, right? Judas, this other Judas says to Jesus, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose or reveal yourself to us and not the world? So this is the Judas who is mentioned several other times in the New Testament as the Judas, the son of James, is also known as Thaddeus. Okay? And, and just like Simon Peter, we see that some of these guys are known by multiple names, that this is Thaddeus. But this Judas is confused, as I'm sure so many in that room were. He's like, Lord, look, we know that you are Israel's Messiah. Aren't you supposed to reveal yourself to the whole world? Aren't you supposed to establish your kingdom? So, so tell us, what's changed? I mean, here you are saying, we're, I'm going to reveal more of myself to you, and that's great, but what about all those people out there that need to know who you are, who are waiting for the kingdom? What about them? And Jesus' response in verse 23 is, is very interesting. He doesn't really address the question about politics and about earthly kingdoms. What he does is direct the disciples back to what matters most in that particular moment, and that is the promises of God to those who will love and obey him. He's got, you know, Jesus is the master of this. People ask a question, he's like, I'm not going down that trail. I, mean, I wish I could master that skill better because I love rabbit trails, right? Jesus is like, nope, that's not, that's not important right now. This is what we're staying on, love and obedience. Verse 23, Jesus answered Judas and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And look at this. And we will come to him and make our abode or home with him. Wow. By the way, this is the only time in the New Testament where we, we get an understanding that even the Father indwells us. All three persons, right? This is this oneness, this coherence. The Father's in me, I'm in the Father, and we will come to you by way of the Spirit. And together, one God in three persons, we will abide with you. Does that not blow your mind? You're talking about being a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's actually grander than you can even imagine. Listen, if repetition in Scripture is one of the ways that God says, look over here, this is really important, then this is extremely important for us to understand. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, verse 21. And verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. How many times does God have to say it? He's stressing something here. This is very important. There's a strong connection now between love and obedience, and that's what we need to figure out this morning. So let's come back to that original question. What is the proper heart motivation for keeping God's commandments? What's the proper heart motivation for that? What I want to do is talk about a really wrong motivation, some better motivations, and the right biblical motivation that Jesus talks about. So first, let's talk about the most commonly wrong reason that people say, I want to obey, because the Bible says so. Now you might like, what, what, what are you doing, Jeff? That seems like a pretty good reason to obey God, because the Bible says so. But here's the problem. That type of motivation by itself takes us back to the law. 
It takes us back to a life of moralism. It basically says, okay, God, just give me a moral code in a law book, and in my own personal fortitude, I'm going to do my best to obey. I'll buck it up, and I'll grit my teeth, and I'll try to do what I'm told because, all right, fine, I'm a person under authority. I just have to do this. By the way, that is what most people outside of Christianity think we're about. People that stand outside of our faith, they go, you guys, you got this rule book, and you got to say no to all these different things, and God just takes all the fun out of life. So, so we need to get this straight in our own walk so that we can correct that as people make that claim against us. That's not what Christianity is. But far too many Christians take this approach. They're out there trying to be good. And they're trying to measure up to God's expectations. But they fail every time. Failure after failure after failure. And then at some point, what do they do? They just give up. And then one day they get convicted again. It's a sermon. It's a Bible passage, whatever. And they, they try it again. They'll commit to try. In fact, they're going to try harder this time. But sadly, they'll employ the very same doom strategy that failed the last time. And they fall into this cycle of futility of trying, failing, and giving up. It's just because the Bible tells me to. And then there's churchgoers who aren't true believers at all. Roman Catholic friends of ours, they'll spend their time and energy trying to impress God with good deeds, to earn God's favor, and at the same time making sure everybody else sees that they're polished up and super religious. And it really doesn't even matter to them that their private life and what they do in public don't line up at all, that they're actually hypocrites. They don't, they don't see that as a problem. They see it as a win-win. God's going to reward them for their efforts, and everybody around me is going to think I'm super religious. Friends, this is a path towards lifeless moralism, and it's a doomed strategy. Do not fall for it. So let's look at some better motivations. I'm going to give you three that are Still not quite right, but better. The first one is what we call the way of fear. This is where we say in our heart, okay, I read the Bible. The Bible says that God's the judge. He's a consuming fire. He's going to judge all disobedience. So I'm going to strive to obey so that I avoid his wrath. Fear. Number two, there's a way that we call the way of reason. This is where we say in our heart, well, it's only reasonable that we obey God's law. After all, he created all things. He knows how everything works. And so for my own good, I will strive to keep his commandments. The way of reason. And then there's the way of blessing. This is where we say, well, God loves me. We know he's all powerful and good. And so if I keep his commandments, then somehow I'm going to receive some material blessing from his hand. The way of blessing. Now, all three of those that I just mentioned have some measure of biblical truth in them. They're better than the first one. There's some biblical truth. We should have a healthy fear of God. Amen? We should see the reasonableness of obeying God's law. True? And we should trust that obedience is going to lead to blessing. But here's the thing. When we set out to keep the commandments of Christ in order to, one, avoid penalties or two, to receive some kind of benefit, then what's the motivation for our obedience? Is it not self-seeking? To some measure, it's self-seeking. Again, not that there's no truth in those three, but the ultimate motivation is it's for my good. It's for me. 
It was the medieval theologian Bernard of Clairvaux, some of you church history geeks like Bernard, 11th century. He wrote this little bit of insight and wisdom, and I, I've used it a number of times. So I just think it's so good. He says this, Who offers men a reward for doing what they want to do? Do we pay hungry men to eat or thirsty men to drink? The soul that loves God seeks no other reward than the one whom it loves. Were the soul to demand anything else, then it would certainly love that other thing, not God. In other words, if in our striving to keep God's commandments, we seek some kind of good result for ourselves, then we love that result more than we love God. It, this is really subtle stuff, isn't it? it, it, it it's something that you may not have even recognized in yourself, and, and that's okay. If this is an epiphany for you today, praise the Lord, because this can be really subtle. Months ago, I, I read a really helpful article that, that put the same principle into more contemporary terms. Here's what the author wrote. He said, suppose that three men go running five days a week. And when they're asked why, what motivates them to do that, here's how they answered. The first man said, I run because my father died of a heart attack in his mid-50s, and I want to live long enough to retire and see my grandkids. Second man said, I run because then I can eat anything I want and not put on weight. Plus, I sleep better when I exercise regularly. The third man said, when I run, my legs soar over the ground, the wind brushes against my face, and I feel so alive. Now, none of those motivations to run are bad, are they? In fact, there's some good in all of them, but only the third one is best. The first man runs out of fear. If I stop running, maybe I'm going to die early. The second man runs for specific benefits to his life. My weight's going to stay down. I'm going to sleep better. For the third man, running is its own reward. It's the running that matters. The first two men love things other than running. The third man, for him, running is the end in itself. So hard question for us. How many of us here today strive to keep God's commandments for no other reason than God himself? It's a really important question for your heart. You strive to keep God's commandments for no other reason than God. Okay, so we've seen a bad motivation. We've seen better motivations. Let's talk about the proper biblical motivation. Go back to verse 15 in your text. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Drop down to verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So notice, loving Jesus is not the same thing as keeping the commandments. One precedes the other. It's very important to get the order right. We're to love Christ first and let that lead to obedience. So keeping his commandments is the result of properly loving him. Does that make sense? So if you picture a tree, and I know we do this a lot, we picture a tree of the healthy Christian life. Loving Jesus is the root system of the tree. It's the root system. And keeping the commandments of Christ is the fruit that grows on those branches. If the root of love is healthy and vibrant, there's going to be a corresponding amount of fruit of obedience on the branches. And the opposite is true. If the root's not in good shape, well, there's not going to be a lot of fruit there. I mean, it's a simple 
simple image and a simple concept, but sometimes we get it confused. So if we want to grow stronger in our obedience to the commandments of God, what do we focus on? I just make a long list of things I should do this week, and I set out to do them. No. If we want to grow in our obedience to the commandments of God, we pursue Christ to love him. We go to the root. Which raises the question, well, what does that actually mean, right? What does it mean to love Christ in this way? Well, let me give you a couple of examples from John's gospel about how this word love is used. John 3.19. It says, men loved the darkness rather than the light. What does that mean? The darkness is what people truly desire, right? It's what they prefer. And more than that, it's what pleases them most. It's what they crave. They crave the darkness rather than the light. You see there, John 12, 43. They love the approval of man more than the approval of God. So human praise is what they want the most. That is what they long for. It's the driving force of their lives and the thing that gives them the most joy, the approval of men. Now apply that to loving Christ. Is he what you long for in your heart? Do you crave time with him and in his word? Is his glory the driving force of your life? Does growing in your knowledge of him provide you with the most joy? And those are really challenging questions, aren't they? In a world as complex as, as ours, where there's so much out there that begs for our attention and so many things that we can, we can love, little idols that seep into the heart, those are really challenging questions. But if we answer them honestly, it might give us a very unique insight into why we struggle to keep God's commandments. It's because we have a love problem. That's why we struggle. Uh, put very simply, we love ourselves more than we love God. That's why we struggle. When that's the case, when our love is out of whack and we love ourselves more than God, absolutely we are going to struggle to die to ourselves. And we are going to struggle to root out the idols that have now gotten on the throne of our heart and pushed God out. We have a love problem. We just love ourselves too much. What do we tend to do when we fall short in this area of keeping God's commandments? You know how that, that guilt and that shame rises up, especially when you hear a sermon like this? <laughs> or, or, any, or any sermon, or you read the scriptures, you read an article, something that guilt and shame comes up, and you're like, man, I'm failing at this so badly. Well, many times we take the wrong strategy, right? We go immediately to the lack of fruit and we try to fix those things. What's on the outside? I'm going to do better this week, we say. In fact, man, fruit's coming. I can feel it in my bones. I'm going to make it happen. But when we do that, we haven't even started in the right place. We haven't started in the right place. We haven't repaired what's going on at the root which is that we love ourselves more than we love Christ. Listen, Jesus is to be loved and valued and treasured and worshiped because he is infinitely worthy of all of that. Using that runner's analogy, he is the end in himself, period. 
period. He is the end. And he's proven himself over and over again to be worthy of our trust. Whether we understand all the whys behind his commandments or not, we can trust him over and above our limited vision and our human opinions and our human reasoning. He's trustworthy. And I know we say this a lot at Oak Hill, but it's always good to repeat. Biblical love can come with feelings, but it's not defined by feelings. Biblical love often has feelings attached to it, but we don't define it by our feelings. Biblical love is not having warm fuzzies about someone. It's not even about having a feeling of affection. Why? Because our feelings waver. They're all over the place. And our feelings fade over time. So it can't be that, right? Biblical love is more than a feeling. Biblical love is a self-sacrificing commitment that seeks the highest good of the one we love. Let me say it again. Biblical love is a self-sacrificing commitment that seeks the highest good of the one we love. In the case of Jesus, that means the highest good is for us to seek his glory, to glorify him. That's the highest good. And when we make Christ's glory the driving force of our lives, when we long for him and find our greatest joy in going deeper with him, then listen, keeping the commandments is not hard anymore. Keeping the commandments is not hard anymore because the root's been cared for. The root's been tended and we love him. We'll find that we don't have to stress over all the details of the commands because we have simply settled the fact that he is God and he is good and the root is being tended. And then look at the promises that we have in verses 21 and 23. When we love God in this way, not perfectly, but we tend to the roots and our love is in place, look at the promises. Verse 21, he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. What a great promise from, from almighty God. Imagine that. Verse 23, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So catch how this works, and I call this the cycle of sweet love. <laughs> it just is. God first loved us. You have to start there. If you don't start there, you'll never get to the right place, right? It's the old saying, you want to get to the right end, you got to start at the right place. Romans 5, uh, Romans 5.8, right? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us first. Listen, if you're a born-again believer here this morning, you have to know this. Jesus loved you before you kept one of his commands. While you were yet a sinner, he died for you. You've got to know that. But then, once he draws you and regenerates your heart and justifies you and adopts you as his child, then he invites you into the Trinitarian relationships. And then he commands us to love him as we should and to glorify him as he deserves. And then he gives us the grace and the power to do that and knowing our response, he then promises to come to us and keep loving us, to draw us deeper into that relationship, to love us deeper and more intimately. It's a, it's a cycle of sovereignty and grace and love that God starts and calls us to join him. It's the sweetest place. And I know some of you guys, you're, maybe you're young Christians or you haven't quite figured this out yet, and you're like, I've never felt that. Again, there are people in this church that can walk you through that. But that's where peace is found. That's where joy is found. That's where contentment and hope are found, is in that sweet cycle of love that God gives us. You and him, 
and the Father, Son, and Spirit in you. Now, I don't want anybody to be discouraged here this morning. If you've heard this and you're like, wow, this is sort of new to me. And you know what? Now I'm looking at my past and I have flunked this. I've flunked this whole thing. <laughs> I mean, I've never done this well. I want to encourage you. I've got really good news. There is not anybody here this morning that has loved Christ as he or she should. There is not anybody here this morning who has kept God's commandments like he or she ought to. And so it makes you stand back and ask the question, so what about that? Are we not true Christians? How many of you guys have been kept up at night before you've thought about this? You're like, I am just such a failure as a Christian. And it nags at your soul, right? I've tried to obey the Lord, but I fail all the time. Does this mean I'm not a true disciple? If you haven't thought that, come talk to me after the service. Because I think it's common to all of us. But let me ask you a question. Do you think God, who knows all things, expects full satisfaction of the law from you? In your strength? Do you think he expects that? First, he knows that's not possible. Second, he knows it's practically untrue because he knows you. But most importantly, third, if you or I could keep the law perfectly and satisfy the demands of the law, the death of Christ isn't necessary. His own son doesn't have to go to the cross if we can do it ourselves. But because of that substitutionary death, which by faith makes us spotless in God's sight, listen to me now, he is pleased to accept a love from us that is sincere, even if it's far from perfect. Be encouraged by that. He is pleased to accept a love from us that is genuine and sincere, though completely imperfect. Our stumbling, flawed, non-meritorious, but genuine obedience, he's pleased to accept. If it's born out of love for Jesus... That's important. So it's not about being perfect in keeping, our, keeping the commandments. It's about the direction of your heart. God looks at the heart, right? He is not, God's not there going, oh, wow, Kenny's really killing it today. He's, he's just, man, he's doing so many great things. And Kenny does, but you know what God's looking at? Mmm, Kenny's heart. Why is he doing those things? Right? We, I mean, we think we're fooling God. He looks at the heart. Calvin actually spoke about this in his day, lest some of you were like, wait, are we supposed to believe this? Calvin talked about it. I mean, always appeal to somebody smarter than you, right? Here's what Calvin said. He said, they, true believers, are to strive. Strive how? According to the capacity of human weakness to form their life in conformity to the will of God. For whenever Scripture speaks of the righteousness of the faithful, it does not exclude remission of sins, but on the contrary, begins with it. That's a great statement. Notice a couple things in that quote. Calvin does not shy away from the language of striving, and neither should we. This is something that Reformed Christians don't often talk about because we don't want to give off the impression that somehow human beings can muster up the power necessary to do good things and please God. We can't, right? We, apart from him, we can do nothing. Nevertheless, by the power of the Spirit who indwells us, we are called to genuinely strive to love Christ as he commands us. 
and in that love to genuinely strive to obey his word. So yeah, we ought to be energetic and passionate about pursuing Jesus and all that he has taught. Listen, to work hard at growing in holiness. <gasps> to work hard at that, growing in holiness. All the while realizing that our striving is always going to be marked by what Calvin talks about here, by our weakness. And that weakness does what? Drives us right back to dependence upon the Holy Spirit within us. Right? Notice how Calvin also includes remission of sins in that statement. Repentance. That is an essential part of this striving for righteousness. That's so important to understand. It's one thing to obey the commandments of God and avoid the deeds of darkness, but it also includes being honest about our sins and daily running to Christ for cleansing and forgiveness. That's part of our striving as well. As he writes later, I'll give you a second half of the quote. While we will not love God perfectly, we should nevertheless aspire, keyword, aspire to this perfection according to the measure of grace given to us. In fact, the language that you see there is similar to what I've read multiple times from one of my favorite theologians, D.A. Carson. Here's what he says. He says, we ought to have in our lives a grace-driven effort, a grace-driven effort that beats in our hearts and in every step we take. Here's why. And, and, and Carson says this clearly. Because people don't drift towards holiness. Right? Uh, we don't accidentally stumble into sanctification. I woke up today and I stumbled and I got more holy. Doesn't happen. Growing in holiness requires our attention and our effort by the grace of God. So we got to balance these things, don't we? Right? Apart from him, we can do nothing. But does that mean we can sit on our couch and eat bonbons and go, God is sanctifying me? Seems kind of silly. But here's an amazing truth that I think proves what I'm saying. When Jesus begins to pray, when we get to John 17, this great what we call the high priestly prayer, he begins to pray and listen to what he says to his father. He says, my disciples, they have kept your word. Seriously? The, the same guys who that very night walked into that upper room for Passover arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. They've kept your word, he says. The ones who are all going to run out of fear and abandon the Lord when he gets arrested, they've kept your word, Jesus says. Peter, three times is going to deny even knowing Jesus, they have kept your word, Lord. How is that possible? Did those 11 men over those couple of days just become completely holy and perfect? So far from it. But Jesus looks at their heart. Jesus looks at their heart. And he sees genuineness of their love. It's flawed. It's full of potholes. But God looks at the heart. So what we learn here, two things are true of every single Christian. First, deep within, there is an intense, steady, longing, yearning to love Christ, to do his will, to keep his commandments. It's there. And second, every authentic Christian knows he has so far to go. In fact, he, he, he agrees with Paul, Philippians 3. Paul says, not that I've already obtained it. Paul says that. Man, 
If Paul can say that, we can say that. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, he writes, but I press on. I strive. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. In case you missed it the first time, he says, I haven't gotten there. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the big question. Are those two things present in you? Are they present in you this morning? Here we go. I'll give them to you. A steady longing to love Christ and to walk in his word and a realization that we're not there yet. We're not there. That there's so much more striving to be done. Did you hear what Paul said? Are, are you bogged down about your past? Yeah, but Jeff, I, I've failed so many times. Are you bogged down? Are you looking back? He says, forgetting what lies behind. Pressing forward. Pressing on, he says, toward the goal that God has laid out for you. It can start today. God's mercies are new even this morning. And maybe there's been something new you've heard today and you're like, man, I'm making connections here. I'm starting to see it. Ask a question. Seek out somebody who can help you. May that be true of everybody here this morning and beginning today that we all begin to, to rethink how we've seen love and obedience, to reshape it, to think rightly about how love and obedience work together. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you for this church body. Thank you for bringing us to this place this morning. Lord, we are a grateful people today because we know that you loved us long before we could even think about following your will or keeping your commandments, that you loved us even when we were your enemies, when we were living in rebellion against you. You loved us and you, you, you called us and you drew us and you regenerated our hearts you gave us new desires and you justified us in your sight and you adopted us as your children you gave us all these promises about our eternal home with you that would be enough lord for us to fall on our face and to worship you and then you went beyond that you said come into this relationship of the trinitarian persons and you commanded us to love you and to glorify you. And you said, we'll give, I'll give you the grace and the power to do it if you would just lean into me, if you would just seek my, my face, if you would just allow me to deepen our relationship together. And Lord, oftentimes we have said, no, thank you. And so we repent of that this morning, that we have loved ourselves too much. And me as the first and greatest of all sinners, Lord, I say, Lord, forgive me that so many things have gotten in the way of me loving you as you deserve. May that be the cry of our hearts this morning in repentance, but then not to stop there, but to praise your name for your goodness, for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, that we would stand up this morning as we close in song and we would belt it out because you are God and because you are good. Lord, cause us to do that well this morning so that your name is lifted up and you are magnified in our life and in the life of this church. 
Jesus, thank you. We love and adore you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.